Amen. Hey, you can be seated where you're at. We're going to dismiss our four and five-year-olds uh, back to Children's Church and our kinder first, second, and third graders out to warehouse worship. Uh, and if you're staying in here with us, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 1 this morning, is where we'll be. Uh, last week, at the end of Luke 19, Jesus entered Jerusalem. And what we saw as he comes in on a donkey, he is hailed as what? Anybody? King, right? He's hailed as King, the Messiah King, as he comes into Jerusalem. And we also looked at last week how he then immediately turns and he weeps. He weeps as he looks at Jerusalem and he sees how they are rejecting him. Even though the crowd has just held him as king, he knows these same people are going to turn and reject me as their king. And he drove out the market uh, from the temple, all the people that were selling stuff, all, making, making the Lord's house something else. And he said what? That his house would be a house of prayer. And what is prayer? A place where humanity and God speak, right? And so Jesus is in the last week of his life, and in, in this chapter today, Luke 20, we're going to see Jesus is going to teach. He's going to stand in God's house, and he is going to speak with the people. God himself speaking with the people. So let's look at it, verse 1, Luke chapter 20. It says, one day, as Jesus was teaching in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. 
So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And so they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that, um, that we have it, that we know the good news of the gospel. Uh, we don't wonder, uh, some of us might, God, but we don't wonder how to, how to have a relationship with you. We don't, uh, God, you've, you've made that very clear, <laughs> that we simply have to call out to you like Finn, like so many others in faith and say, God, I'm a sinner who needs you. God, I've messed up, and you sent your son to die for me, to forgive me, to wash me clean. God, have mercy on me. That's all it takes. God, we thank you that we have that good news. God, I pray that we would not be like these religious leaders. Uh, We would not be like hard-hearted Israel who rejected you over and over, no matter how many times we heard your word. God, I pray that we would not harden our hearts, God, but that we would own our sin, confess it, seek forgiveness in you, God, because there is mercy, and we thank you for that. Thank you for the picture of getting to see that in Finn's life today. Uh, So we love you this morning. I pray that you'd be with us as we study your word. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Jesus is in, again, the last week of his life. And he's going to spend it doing a number of things, but primarily he spends the middle of that week leading up to Good Friday, crucifixion, resurrection. He spends it in his father's house teaching. He's still teaching. He's trying to persuade these same people that he just drove out for their wrongdoing and and the people that he knows that are going to reject him. He still has a heart to persuade them, to teach them the truth. Of what? What does it say at the beginning? What was he preaching? It says the gospel. He's preaching the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, right? That that if we repent and turn from our sin, God is faithful to forgive us. That is the good news of the gospel. And Jesus is preaching this to some very hard-hearted people. He's teaching this to uh, people that that really aren't going to turn from their sin, And it says in verse 2, we get the scene of this particular teaching. It says, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that has given you this authority? So there's there's a number of people included, chief priests, scribes, elders, and and they're different. They've got some diversity of opinion about different things, but they have a united opinion about one thing. 
They've got to get rid of Jesus. They've got to do something about Jesus and not just, hey, let's send him to another country. They desire to kill him. They have hatred. These are religious leaders with hatred in their heart, desiring to kill someone who is their enemy or they perceive to be their enemy. And he's threatened their position. He's threatened their place among the people and their authority. Now, here's the deal. They're smart. They've made this political decision that they're not just going to confront him directly. They know they can't win that. <laughs> They've kind of tried in some ways. And, and they also don't have the, the power or the authority like the Romans do to kill. So they can't just arrest him, falsely charge him, and kill him. They can't do that. So they've got to do two things. They got to get the people on their side and they got to get the Romans on their side. And so they're, they're asking these questions first to try to get the people of Israel on their side. They're trying to show the people of Israel that Jesus is wrong somehow. He's not, but they're trying to manipulate and spin and all that sort of stuff. Now they're trying to get him to claim to be God outright specific so they can accuse him of blasphemy and get the people on their side so they come to him and they ask him this question is the baptism of john from heaven or from man now what they're really asking is this do you believe that john was sent from god was he really a prophet did god really send him is he really saying the true things from god or do you think he's just a madman. You think he's just making all this stuff up. They're trying to get Jesus to take a position on John. Uh, was he really a prophet or is he just a liar? Uh, I'm, I've totally messed this up. That's not, that's not what happened. Jesus asked them that. My brain is in shambles this morning. Okay, pray for me. They asked Jesus, sorry, let me just pause for a second. They asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing this? They're, they're trying to understand where he's coming from. But he doesn't answer their question. He comes at them with this question. What is your position on John? There we go. That makes a lot more sense. What is your position on John? Is he really a prophet from God or is he a liar? And so they get together, they huddle up, and they discuss it. And Really only two options, right? If I, this is an either-or question. There is no third option, although they're going to create a third option. And they say in verse 5, um, if we say he's from heaven, then he will say, why did you not believe him? So if they agree with Jesus that John the Baptist was a prophet from God who spoke the truth, what they would be affirming and what they would have to admit is that everything that John said was true and John said, this is the Lamb of God who sent as the Messiah to save the people from their sins. All the things that John preached about Jesus, they would have to be on that camp. And they know what? We don't believe that. So they know they can't side on that. So then they think, okay, what's the other side? If we say John's not from God, he's just some lunatic, he's not speaking the truth. The only problem with that was this. They knew that the people believed John was from God. And so the people really believed that. So these religious leaders, just think about them. Think about this moment. They don't care what's true. They have no concern for what's true. What, what is their calculation? What's good for us? What's politically advantageous? 
What would be the best answer for us to give? They don't care what's true. They're not dealing with, is Jesus really the Messiah or is he not? Was John sent from God or not? Because if we deal in that, then you've got to deal with their message. But they don't want to deal with the message. And so they're, they are only concerned and motivated by politics here. They're not God-pleasers. They're not even man-pleasers. They're self-pleasers. They're just out for their own benefit. We see this in most of the politicians that we have in the United States today. <laughs> they're not out for us. They're not out for them. They're not out for God. They're out for themselves, right? This is true of so many politicians on both sides of the aisle. This is not a political statement for or against anybody. But this is who they are. Their wicked heart does not care about the truth. They care about how am I perceived. And so what do they do? They answer, verse 7, they answered, we don't know. <laughs> what a cop-out. <laughs> no, no courage, no backbone, no willingness to stand up for what's true or right. Simply, we do not know. Why? Because they don't want to rile up Jesus and they don't want to rile up the crowd. But in doing so and not dealing with the question of is it true, they miss it. And so they shamefully have to admit to Jesus that they don't know the answer to his question. And so Jesus says in verse 8, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus refuses to say what they want him to say. Now here's the truth. He has said this over and over throughout his ministry, where he comes from, what he's doing, that God has sent him. He's claimed to be the son of God. He's claimed to, for God to be his father. He's done miracles. He, he has made it very clear. He does not have to answer that question here. And because they won't answer, he decides not to. And so he tells immediately a parable. And he's going to speak against them and their hard-heartedness. Why are they hard-hearted? Because they won't deal with the truth. They're just politically motivated. They're just self-motivated. They won't deal with the truth. So here's what he says. He tells this parable of the wicked tenants. And in this parable, uh, it starts out and it says that a man planted a vineyard and he leased it out. Uh, he let it out to tenants and he went to another country for a long while. Now this parable is not familiar to us uh, per se, but this would have been full of imagery that they understood. Vineyards, very common. Uh, absentee landowners having somebody else farm it for them, very common. Uh, contracts, covenants, agreements between people to, uh, you know, hey, you farm and you get this percentage and I'll get this percentage. That was very familiar imagery for them. And so this landowner has this farm. He gives it to a group of people. They run it, and he's going to reap uh, some profit from it. And so it says in verse 10 that the time came he sent a servant uh, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So as, as it was agreed upon in their covenant, their uh, contract agreement, the landowner sends somebody, hey, it's been a year. You made this much. I need my 50%, right? And they sends the servant to collect it. But to the very much the surprise of the listeners of this parable, the tenants refuse to pay. Now, some of you are not surprised by that. You have rent houses or other things, and you know how this works. Uh, but not only did they refuse to pay, what did they do? They beat him. It's a very strong word that actually means to skin 
right? So the imagery is not just like, hey, we, we punched him in the face and sent him along his way. No, they tore him up. And so the tenant, the landowner, hears of this. And what does he do? He sends another one. He thinks, okay, well, they, maybe they mistake, they mistook that guy for somebody else. He sends another one. And what happens? Same thing. They treat him shamefully. They cast him out. They don't listen to him. They don't, they don't follow through with their part of the agreement, the covenant. So the landowner gets word back. What does he do? And his great, I, at this point, I think I would have done something different, right? I, w- I would have changed the strategy, but what does he do? He sends a third, verse 12. And this one was also wounded and cast out. Right? There's, there's a picture of mercy and grace that the landowner's still doing. Hey, I'm just trying to follow through with my side of the covenant. Hey, I'm just going to keep sending a servant to give you my word, and I'm hopeful that you'll just receive it and do what we agreed upon. But the tenants reject him, beat him, send him away again. And so the thir- verse 13, the owner of the vineyard changes his strategy. He says, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will res- respect him. In this one last-ditch effort, the, the landowner thinks, maybe they just didn't respect those servants. Maybe they didn't really believe them. But if I send my son, surely they will respect him. He sends his own son, thinking this would change it. But what happens, verse 14? When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let's kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and kill, killed him. As the tenants saw the son arrive, they didn't go, oh, oh no, he sent the son. <laughs> they didn't cower in fear. No, their selfishly motivated, hardened hearts said, man, now we've got an opportunity. And they conspired together to kill him, thinking that maybe the vineyard would become theirs completely. They no longer would have to share the profits. But these tenants are wicked, beating, casting out, killing. They are terrible. And it says in verse 15 and 16, it says, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And this is what they expected to hear. They expected, yeah, that, that guy's got to do something about this. This is not right. He, they, he's got to come himself, and he's got to take care of business because they are not following through with their side of the covenant agreement, right? He's got to come and exact vengeance on this wickedness, and he's going to give it to someone else. This is the only rightful response for a landowner in their day. And then it hits them in verse 16. When they heard this, they said, surely not. And what they mean is this. They realize for the first time that he is talking about them. They realize that they are not the landowner. They are not the son. They are the tenants. And they realize, surely not. Surely you're not saying this about us. They finally understand he's speaking to them. Now think about it. The landowner represents God. And he's given uh, a a thing, some stuff, a vineyard to some people. And he's left some people in charge of it. This is Israel. This is his, his people. 
And and the tenants are these religious leaders who have been tasked with fulfilling the covenant, following his ways, and, and being in relationship with him. And what had God done through the years? He had sent servant after servant. He'd sent a guy named Isaiah. He'd sent a guy named Jeremiah. He sent a guy named Job. He sent all kinds of servants to them throughout the Old Testament. And how did they treat those prophets? How did they treat those people who came to speak to them God's word, to uphold them and call them back to the covenant? How did they treat them? Just like the tenants in the parable. Right? We, we know that prophets in the Old Testament were beaten. Some were sawed in two. They were thrown into pits. They were stoned to death. They were abused in all kinds of ways. Totally rejected. And God's people very rarely responded to that word and repented. Now the Son, Jesus makes very clear, represents Him. That finally the landowner has sent his own son thinking maybe they'll respect me. Maybe they'll finally respond to the son's word. And Jesus right here is claiming to be the son of God. And he's showing them that he's come in the same line as all these other servants of God to speak to them God's word and to call them back to himself. But what does he say? What's the point of the story? The son is killed. What's he saying about himself? He's telling them over and over again, you're going to reject me. You're going to crucify me. You're going to get rid of me thinking that this is God's will and you're, you're absolutely in the wrong. And one day, God is going to turn that over to some others. It's not going to be the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Who's he going to turn it over to? To the apostles. And so he, verse 17 it says, he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, and he's making the statement, though you reject me, I am becoming the cornerstone, the foundation. Uh, the cornerstone was, and I don't know a lot about this, you construction guys, we don't do this anymore. But the cornerstone was the very first stone that set the angles, what, what true right angle was for a building that established the, the safety and security and the, the firmness of the foundation of that building. And he's saying, though you rejected me, I'm becoming the cornerstone. I'm becoming the primary thing that God is about to do. Though you've rejected me, what God's doing through me is the new way. And he says in verse 18 that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Right? There's some people, and what he's drawn here is what he said last week, what he said so many times, you're either with me or you're against me. You're either for me or against me. There's a a clear line in the sand. You're either with me or you're against me. You're either going to build your life on my foundation or you're going to be crushed right? There's no other option. He's drawing a very clear line in the sand. Now think about those leaders that day that stood there and listened to this parable, and they had this realization, wow, he's talking about me. I've rejected him. Now what has their heart been? They're not concerned with truth. They're not concerned with what is actually happening. They're concerned with people's reaction. And so you would think, man, hearing that, if you got called out on that and said, man, you're hard-hearted and you keep turning from God, you need to turn back because there's grace. 
If your heart is soft, if your heart is responsive to God, then in that moment, what do you do? Yeah, I've messed up. I got to turn back and go towards God. But what do they do? They harden their hearts further. They harden their hearts further. Let's look at it in verse 19. So they come to him with this question, and they've already come to him with another question, trying to get the people on their side. Now they're trying to get the Romans on their side. And they ask him this question, verse 19, let's just read it. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Right? So, so, so these religious leaders, we can see their hard heart in so many different ways. First, their hearts are full of rage. <laughs> their hearts are full of rage. God did not design us to be angry. God, God did not desire us to be people that are motivated and fueled by rage and revenge and anger. If, if we are that way, we are in the wrong and we need to repent. And these religious leaders are so filled with hate for Jesus, they're trying to kill him. If you've gotten to that point in your mind that you've justified why it might be okay for you to kill somebody, you're in the wrong. Let me just say it very clearly, okay? And these religious leaders are in the wrong. Their hearts are hardening. That's first. Their hearts are full of rage. Second, their hearts are prideful. They think that they are above and better than. Like we said earlier, they're, they're, they're not God pleasers. They're not even people pleasers. They are self pleasers. And they did not want the people to think poorly of them. That's what he just said, right? They feared the people. Even though they hated these people, even though they looked down on these people, they were so prideful and selfishly motivated. So what did they do? Verse 20. It says, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Their third sin that's noted here was that of hypocrisy, right? They're appearing to be one thing, but in reality, they're something totally different, right? In front of the, on the stage or in front of the people, they're one thing, but in reality, they're something different, they present themselves as good, righteous, religious people, but in reality, their hearts are enraged, trying to kill, trying to consolidate power. They're pretending. They're not genuine. And so they asked him, verse 21, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Does this sound like them? <laughs> not at all. This is not what they talk like. Their fourth sin was that of flattery. They are saying things in front of Jesus that they would not say behind his back. They are buttering him up. They are trying to, to, to woo him over and, and pretend and do all this sort of stuff. Flattery is changing your message based on who you're talking to. It's, it's wicked and it's sinful. And these religious leaders who are supposed to be the, the, the ones who are pointing the people to God... They are showing over and over how hard their hearts have gotten. That they can justify these things. Hatred. They can justify uh, deception. And so they ask Jesus, verse 22, Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? This is their fifth sin is deception. Because they don't really care about this. 
This is not their genuine concern, this question. But they're asking this question to try to get Jesus in a trap, right? They are trying to deceive. They're not speaking plainly, truthfully, and clearly. No, they are trying to deceive so that Jesus might say something anti-Roman. No, we don't have to actually pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus is smarter than that. But you can see it over and over. They're not genuine. They're practicing deception. Verse 23 and 24. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have. And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus recognizes their trap that they're laying for him, and he gives this very simple answer, but a very profound answer. And and to be honest, it's worth really considering more than we have time for today. But he asked for this coin that was worth the equivalent of a day's wage for a Roman soldier. And so they hand him the coin, and he says, "Whose, whose image is that? On there, right? It's Caesar's. Then give it to Caesar, right? It's his. It's what belongs. And give to God the things that are God's. So what's he saying? What's he saying? Jesus recognizes the already and not yet of the kingdom. That, that King Jesus reigns today, and that's true in the United States of America. We, we submit to King Jesus and his word. But we also have earthly rulers that rule over us. And Jesus and Paul and others lay this out that we are to honor and render to them. That God has put them over us to to rule over us. It's God that has done that. We are to honor them. But we're to mainly, primarily give our allegiance to the true king. We give our taxes to the government, but we give our worship to the true king. Does that make sense? We are to fulfill our obligations to a human government, but our spiritual obligations to God. And Jesus, in verse 26, and I'll close with this, says they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. This answer, I I think, infuriated them even more. Because they thought they had him. They had this, "Mm, maybe we'll get him here. But he did not incriminate himself. He spoke with full wisdom, and so it silenced them. And actually, this last one shows their sin even more. Their stubbornness. Their hard-heartedness. That though they've been shown over and over and over again that they're in the wrong, Jesus is right, that, that Jesus really is a prophet sent from God. He's proved it over and over and over again. They are hard-hearted. They do not respond to the truth that's right in front of them. They're simply justifying their sin, justifying their hatred, their pride, their hypocrisy, their flattery, their deception, And in doing that, they're rejecting the king of kings who's proclaiming, standing in the temple that day, proclaiming the good news of the gospel to them, trying to persuade them to his side. And they continue and continue to reject it. Now, this is the same place that every single one of us stands today. I know so many of us in the room 
very few of you I've never seen before. And we come and we hear the word of God week after week. We hear the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died to save sinners. And though, though we are so prone to go back to our sin, he wants us to walk in freedom with him. And the gospel rec- rescues us from that life. And we've proclaimed this message over and over and again. And some of you, like the disciples, hear that and believe that and live it out. But some are just like these religious leaders who, though they've heard the message time and again, though they, they hear the truth, we, you make the calculation, yeah, but I'm not worried about truth. I'm really just worried about what people think about me. I'm really just, I, I like my life. I like my position. I like my, my sin. I like how this is going. And so that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. This is exactly where we find ourselves today. There's a clear dividing line. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. You're either living by faith in him or you are his enemy who you will one day fall and trip on the cornerstone that he is. And the question today is are we going to continue as hard-hearted sinners rejecting the good news of the kingdom or are we going to joyfully surrender to King Jesus? That's it. Those are the only two options. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. And I pray that, that each one of us would be more concerned with what is true and eternal, God, than what is temporary and politically or socially advantageous for us, God. God, I pray that we would not be so wicked as to turn from the truth and just be concerned about how others might perceive us. God, if we really believe that your word is true, that you came and you lived in our place and you died in our place to rescue sinners, God, if we really believe this to be true, then let us stand firm on it and let us not waver from it. God, I pray that through my many words today, God, that you have spoken. God, not mine, but yours, God. I pray that if there's someone in here today who doesn't know you, God, that they would put their faith in Jesus who lived and died for them to forgive them, to rescue them, just like Finn, to bring them out of where they were and bring them to a new place, God, to create a new person in the place of the old. And I pray that if somebody in here knows that they They don't know you, God, that they would repent and turn from their sin today, putting their faith in you. So we love you today. I thank you for a chance to be together as a church. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.